Welcome to Open Mind UFO Radio. This is your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I have with me nobody. Jason is out of town today, so I'm flying solo. So today we have an interesting show. We've got a great guest. His name is Jordan Hofer. He is actually a research specialist in anthropology for MUFON. He uh, works in Darwinian evolution as uh, doing all kinds of different stuff. That's what his degree's in. He's taught uh, in that area. And he's wrote, written a book called Evolutionary Ufology. And he had some very original and ish, interesting ideas about extraterrestrials. And we'll be talking to him about that. He has also put some of these ideas together in a fiction book called Saucerville that has just come out recently. It's kind of a coming-of-age book with some kids, and uh, he has lots of his interesting ideas incorporated in this book. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk to him about his evolutionary ufology ideas, and it will be a lot of fun. And i got to say there's some definitely uh, very uh, unique and novel concepts that uh, he has written about. So uh, we'll talk to him in just a minute. Before that, we'll talk just a little bit about some of the news. Um, remember, you can get all the news at openminds.tv. You can also go to Spacing Out on our YouTube channel to see more in the news. But we had a lot of interesting news this week, I think. One story that we wrote about, I got it from the Daily Mail, actually, and they got it from Wales Online, kind of an AP of, of news service, Wales news service. And I haven't seen it written about very much, which is kind of interesting. And that is this British scientist, uh, actually a team of scientists, who believe they have found extraterrestrial life. So essentially, this guy's name is Chandra Wickram Singh. I know I'm saying his name wrong, but uh, at least I'm making an attempt. And he is uh, a gentleman who made some news earlier this year when he says that some of these meteorites that have been found do show kind of fossils of extraterrestrial life. Uh, this is something that's been debated for a long time, and, and he feels that, that there really is some evidence for this. So uh, he also is into the panspermia idea, this idea that uh, life kind of hitches a ride on asteroids and, and goes around the world or around the universe, and when it falls onto a planet, that's how we get you know these, these biological um, bacteria and things on Earth that grew into more sophisticated life. In order to test his theory, recently a group of scientists led by him out of the University of Buckingham took a balloon and they put some slides uh, that were sealed in there and they launched it to the stratosphere. They exposed these slides to the stratosphere and examined these slides when they came back to the Earth and they found uh, little microbes. They found these little complex organisms that haven't been seen before that are uh they even have pictures here where they show that it has kind of a mouth area and an anus so it, you might be interested in looking at those but these are just tiny little things and then they also found algae what's significant about that is that supposedly life from earth these um microscopic organisms should not be in the stratosphere. There's no way for them to kind of be pushed out into the stratosphere. It's the theory. So if we can't have these things from Earth in the stratosphere, he's saying that then they're most likely extraterrestrial from somewhere else. I should mention also that they did this during the Perseids meteor shower. So this is where the Perseids, where the, kind of this cloud of debris is coming near the planet. So 
Um, very interesting stuff, and it hasn't gotten much news. I mean, their their scientific team is stating we found extraterrestrial life. So uh, I think that's really interesting. Hopefully, maybe you'll hear more about it soon. Otherwise, kind of lots of UFO sighting news. Uh, we talked about the Vancouver sightings at a baseball stadium. Those turned out to be hoaxes. Uh, and we got a lot of information about that from the advertising agency who put on this hoax. So essentially, there's this space center in Vancouver, the H.R. Macmillan Space Center. They're also uh, an observatory, um, kind of a planetarium type of place. Well, they revamped their UFO-looking building and uh, in order to promote it, they decided, well, let's kind of make this drone or this quadcopter that looks like our building, like a UFO, and fly it around and see if people think it's a UFO. Sure enough, some people recorded it at the baseball game, posted it saying, hey, what's this? Looks like a UFO. And that made a bunch of news, which was all part of their plan. Well, uh, we posted that and posted, you know, that I'm sure some people will be a little... Um, disappointed with their idea of kind of hoaxing in order to promote their center. So the ad agency said, you know, we weren't being malicious, and uh, they sent us a lot of pictures and links to videos and stuff uh, so we could post that in our story, so you can see that there. Otherwise, a, a few other interesting uh, UFO stories you'll have to check out. One, I think it's really interesting, a news agency out of Lincoln, Nebraska, there's Silver Surfer, UFO-ish type of thing, if you remember that, in California a couple of years ago. Uh, but this time in Virginia. And then an interesting kind of dish-shaped photo that many are saying is lens flare in uh, Minnesota. And that one's got a lot of debate going. So, yeah, a lot of cool sightings from this week. So check out openminds.tv for all of those sightings. But it is now time my friends, to get to our main interview of the show. So let's get Jordan Hofer on the line. Okay, I am excited to have Jordan Hofer on the line. He is an author and also has worked with MUFON as a research specialist in anthropology. So we'll talk about uh, your new book and upcoming book I saw here and your experiences with MUFON. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on to the show. So one of the things that uh, you've got out now that you're promoting is a uh, fiction book uh, called Saucerville, correct? That's right. Great. And yeah. so this book is kind of uh, – it, it looks like does it have elements of comedy and horror and a kind of a mixing of uh, kind of – maybe some of the ideas or concepts you feel uh, you've discovered from researching UFOs? Yeah, definitely, mm -hmm. definitely. It's a young adult novel, and the idea from the beginning was was to make the book fun, funny, fast, and scary as hell. Uh -huh. that, was, that was the basic uh, recipe for it. And uh, so... I just read along those lines. And, yeah, it is based on, a lot of it is based on actual cases from ufology. Uh, I did that for two reasons. I wanted to make it as uh, believable as possible to draw on, you know, all of the, uh, the, the mythology and so forth that is within the, the UFO mythos. And I also wanted to put in their actual cases so that after kids had read the book, they could, you know, go back to it and see which cases I talked about and actually, you know, look them up on the Internet or find a book and read about them. Ah, interesting. So it takes place in McMinnville, Oregon. So I'd imagine uh, the McMinnville case is one that you refer to. Uh, yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, the book starts out with that in the prologue. It starts out with the trance seeing the UFO and taking their two famous photos of it. And then I weave in the characters from there, and then it moves on. Mm -hmm. So um, are you from the area? Yeah, I'm in Salem. It's about 20, 25 miles away from McMinnville. Uh-huh. And it sounds like, uh, from reading about the book, it that... Uh, 
kind of like Roswell, people talk about UFOs and they kind of have this um it's a topic in the town which kind of annoys the main character, right? <laughs> yeah, the the main character absolutely hates UFOs. He's 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 sick of hearing about them because that's what people talk about all the time. There's uh, actually every year in McMinnville there's a, a festival, a UFO festival, and it's the the second largest right after Roswell. And I do have a chapter that takes place at that festival, mm-hmm. and I, I've been there a couple times, and it was just uh, it, it's just a, a, absolutely rich. It was just perfect for writing from. Right. So, and a lot of people have been going to this uh, McMinnville uh, festival, right? They get pretty yeah. big. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal here, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it looks we, like fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got the parade on on Saturday, and the you know the whole family gets into that, and it's quite a spectacle. Uh, but on Friday night, the night before. Uh, We've had some pretty good speakers come. Last this last year, we had uh, Nick Pope. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, it's it, it is a lot of fun, but it's also you know kind of fun for us ufologists too. Right. So getting into kind of uh, your ideas and some of the concepts, uh, which look really interesting, seem like they kind of uh, stem back from how you originally got involved with this whole field. And if I understand correctly, uh, you were skeptical yourself, but you had uh, friends who had experiences, and uh, so you found yourself struggling uh, with whether to believe them or not. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. And it, it basically started in 2008, mm-hmm. the spring of 2008, and my best friend of 34 years saw a huge black rectangle fly low over his house and it emitted a deep thrumming sound that actually rattled his windows. Wow. Yeah. And I I was I was still teaching in academia at the time at a state university here in Oregon. And when when you're in academia you just don't even think about things like UFOs, even when they happen to your best friend. It's just something you don't even deal with. You just shove it back, and I didn't... This was the horrible part. I I realized after I got out of academia, after after the recession hit and I lost my job, I I realized that I hadn't even believed my best friend. Hmm. And that really shocked me. (laughs) I realized that, you know, it had been a form of... uh, betrayal, actually, because if I had seen such a thing, I would sure as hell want him to believe me. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, you know, this guy I know who did lectures, uh, had sightings, and he used the little red truck theory, uh, which was uh, something he talked about. If your friend came to you and said, you know, I saw a little red truck get uh, in an accident at the stoplight, you wouldn't think twice. You would believe that that happened. But when they tell you an extraordinary story... You know, you you have a hard time believing them, even though you know they're your friend and someone who's trustworthy. Yeah, absolutely. And and his his wife and son had seen it too. So I was I was really just kind of you know not believing his entire family, which is quite an extraordinary position for a friend to take. Mm-hmm. You know, having that perspective as being someone who was skeptical of your friend's story. Uh, while you're in academia, and then having a different perspective once you got out of it, what was the difference? Why did you? Why do you feel you had that different perspective while you were um, working for the school as opposed to not? Oh, that's yeah, that's that's quite simple to answer actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> in academia, anything that's considered paranormal or uh, of high strangeness, as we often say, um, it's just it's a career killer. Mm. And one, one one of my one of my heroes when I was teaching at university, his name was Professor Grover Krantz, 
and he taught at Washington State University for uh, several years, and he was a physical anthropologist, and he had a, uh, just a hobby of studying Bigfoot, and he spent maybe 5% of his time applying the tools of physical anthropology to studying Bigfoot. But it didn't matter that it was just a hobby. It destroyed his career. He, he was uh, unable to advance as a professor. Um, a lot of people didn't take him seriously. And, and, and this, even though he had written some, some very excellent books and articles and so forth on uh, Homo erectus and human evolution in general, Right, but to, so he served as an example as yeah. to why to stay away from it. Absolutely. I mean, it, it doesn't even come into your mind to to entertain these things. I knew of another professor at a local community college who was trying to get into one of the universities I was teaching at, and they would not let him in because they knew that he uh, had theories about Atlantis. Huh. So he was he was kept out of the uh, state university system simply because he had that belief. Wow. So when that moment came and you kind of had that realization and you're like, wow, you know, I've been disloyal to my friend and his family and that's not cool. Uh, that means that uh, that's kind of a big deal because that means you have to sit down and entertain the possibility, which is kind of a you know a world change. A, world view changing type of thing that maybe he really saw what he saw. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he saw some kind of machine. He was not hallucinating. Mm -hmm. It was not a faraway light. It was not Venus. Uh, he, he told me himself that as he was watching this black triangle, he uh, fixed Venus in his vision. He saw Venus, and he's like, okay, well, there's Venus, so I know it's not Venus. Mm -hmm. um, but it definitely was a, an, an, an epiphany, and you know, I felt pretty horrible about myself at first. Mm -hmm. but, but then I just got to work, and you know, he he's trying to figure out what the heck this UFO phenomena are all about, and uh, now, now we're doing it together. Mm-hmm. So that's when you really got then just kind of uh, thrust into the field, and is it that when you started to work with MUFON? Yeah, that's that's when I joined MUFON as a research specialist, and uh, I started to just do an, an extensive literature review, so that I had a pretty good idea of you know the the history of ufology. Mm-hmm. So it looks as though, because you uh, work in, you're an evolutionist, so uh, you work with Dar classical Darwin theories and, and things like that, uh, that you have developed uh, this concept of evolutionary ufology. So you sounds like you've applied uh, your field to this to the UFO field. And what have you found, or where has that led you? Well, yeah, that, that's kind of interesting. The, the, what, I, what I realized right off when I said, okay, well, I've had this epiphany, you know, UFOs do exist. I don't know what they are, but they do exist. Um, I've, I've had two epiphanies that strong in my life, mm. and one was with UFOs. The other was through the study of evolution and then seeing uh, you know, through deep time, the, the 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 changes that have occurred over the last three and a half billion years on this planet. Um, so it it almost since those were the the, the two largest epiphanies I I've ever had, it, it kind of demanded a synthesis, bringing them together and seeing what the interplay of the two studies. Could teach me. Mm -hmm. And and so, how did you begin to apply that? And what were some of the maybe theories that you came up with? Okay, well, the first thing I, I really started thinking about was 
if these, you know, basically I was thinking these, these UFOs are craft, and if they're craft, they're probably being piloted by somebody. And I, I basically go with the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So it just seems to, to me to be the uh, simplest explanation. Mm-hmm. And if they're extraterrestrial, they're probably gray. And so then I, I try to figure out, well, okay, what, what kind of a critter is a gray? Because, you know, you hear these reports about them, and they're, you know, sometimes quite varied. Mm-hmm. But I, I was really interested in what, what kind of an animal is this thing? Right. And how, what, what kind of evolutionary forces would it take to evolve this kind of a creature? Mm-hmm. So that, that was the first, the first way in which I, I, I started to synthesize the ideas. I know I've seen, I think it was in the 70s, uh, you're probably familiar with it, uh, where there was a somebody who worked along those lines who came up with uh, what humans would look like in the future. Well, actually, I think there's a few people who have done that as we evolve. Um, and they both kind of came up with these ideas of these kind of creatures that were shorter with bigger heads. And bigger eyes, uh, and the heads and eyes kind of being disproportionate to the body as our bodies would be used less as they are now. I'm a perfect example sitting here in my cubicle, <laughs> you know, all day, every day. Um, are you, is that kind of where you were headed? Um, not really. That's, uh, I mean, that, that is interesting. That is interesting. But, where I was headed was more what happened to the greys in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And one of my one of my clues that I got early on, uh, there had been a recent discovery of uh, in, in Antarctica of this really strange looking albino Antarctic octopus, and it was it was very 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 pale, it had huge dark eyes, and it looked a lot like a gray. Hmm. And so I, I just started asking myself, well, okay, you know what, we just kind of assume that these critters are bipedal and so forth, but but what if they're not? What if the, what if that vertical position of their body is, is more for our benefit than for theirs? What if they had a horizontal orientation? And instead of being mammalian, what if they were more like a like a cephalopod, like like an octopus or something? And so I kind of took it from there, mm-hmm. and and then and then just and then just played with it. Um, you know, admittedly, this was a thought experiment. Uh, it's 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 speculation, but a lot of it too is based on reports that abductees have made about the odors of these creatures and what they look like and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you do uh, feel strongly, or at least you uh, subscribe to the, the idea that people have been abducted and seeing these gray type of aliens. Yeah, I, 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 do, uh, I do accept that mm-hmm. as a fact. I do. What uh, for you has been uh, the evidence that has been compelling enough to to uh, have you go there from you know your friend seeing a, a solid craft to uh, going to wow you know this abduction phenomena is probably real too. Yeah, uh, for one thing, a lot of reading, uh-huh. um, work of David Jacobs, uh, John Mack. Uh, of course, uh, Bud Hopkins, um, but also uh, Karina Sables, uh, who lives in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, and her book, The Collectors. Her account, her accounts of being abducted, were were so believable in a, in a in a in a personable sense. Um, they had they had the ring of truth 
kind of from one person to another. Like she was, she was just telling the story of what happened to her, and I found it absolutely believable. It had it had the ring of truth to it. Mm-hmm. So that that was one. Also, the works of Car- Carla Turner. Uh, those really influenced me and 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 changed my thinking on it. Um, some of the work of Butch Witkowski, studying human mutilations, um, and also a story that John Mack told about uh, Zimbab- the Zimbabwe school children case, mm-hmm. where something like 65 kids in Zimbabwe at, at this uh, kind of colonial school, they were out on recess, and they all saw this this spaceship land and these greys come out and communicate with them through, uh, telepathically through the eyes. And that one for me was, that, 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 was, that was the case that did it for me. That it, seeing the children being interviewed on YouTube and I, I, I just thought that was utterly credible. Yeah, incredible case and Hopefully, I mean, there's a gentleman working on a documentary. Hopefully, that'll come out soon. And I've seen he spoke at uh, UFO Congress a couple of years ago, where he interviewed some of those kids who are in like their 20s now. And um, yeah, very interesting because they still, you know, hold to their stories that they had, you know, witnessed this incredible and had this incredible experience. So. Another, from looking at some of your evolutionary ufology, the book that uh, you have coming out, it uh, looks like you kind of feel, and maybe you in the book, it, it's like you said, it's terrifying and, and horrifying as you could get it. Um, do you feel that way that, you know, these abduction experiences, this is, this is a horrifying and, uh, and possibly malicious experience? Well, some people, of course, don't think so. Mm-hmm. You know, some, some people feel that they are gaining something spiritually uh, from these abductions and so forth. But it seems to me that the the majority of the cases, I I, I would say yes, these are uh, these are malicious trespasses, and um, the Greys are not. Our benevolent space brothers—they are up to their own nasty, inscrutable, uh, whatever they're doing. <laughs> yeah, one of the ways, one of the big indicators, where I could tell that uh, you uh, didn't think too positively about, you know, the Greys and their agendas was another book that you have coming up that you're going to title "Little Gray Bastards." <laughs> Yeah, um, that was a big kind of uh, oh, okay. He doesn't like you guys very much. <laughs> yeah, ho- hopefully that'll be coming out. Um, Schiffer hasn't uh, told us yet whether or not we've got the green light, um, but we are planning that. And yes, that that pretty much does does sum up how I feel <laughs> When it comes to your experiences as uh, someone working with uh, evolution. Um, and I would imagine, at least in in human evolution, well, probably in all evolution, motivation of a species has a big part to do with that. Um, do you then can you apply that to the greys? Have you been able to figure out what you think might be the motivations and help uh, help give you an idea of what they might be up to and why? Yeah, I I have come up with with some ideas that I explore in evolutionary ufology. Um, I know that David Jacobs does not agree with me on a lot of these points. Uh, he, was, he was still kind enough to write uh, praise for the book, however. Um, I, I think that they are basically psychotic creatures. Hmm. That, that um, they're not here to help us. Uh, they often will show uh, to a, to an abductee scenes of the the earth dying, of being destroyed, and if uh, you know that, that that's nothing new. We we know about environmental degradation, so 
So they're not helping us there at all. Uh, we've got plenty of excellent scientists who are telling us these things. Um, they, they don't seem to be helping with uh, any kind of environmental programs, not even with recycling. So it, <laughs> right. seems, it, it seems to me that, that, that uh, they have great potential to help, but they're not. They're, they're, they're busy collecting uh, uh, sex cells, and they're busy uh, hybridizing, and I, I think I think one of one of their one of, one of their main focuses is simply rape. As as a psychotic would enjoy rape, I think that uh, the Greys do as well. And I, I know it sounds kind of crazy to say that these critters have come 39 light years to rape us, but they're they're nuts. They're crazy and they're mean. The manner in which they go about this, however, is kind of seems sort of uh, clinical. You know, they use uh, equipment to extract, uh, you know, the ova or the sperm, or and so that would be different than um, kind of just for the enjoyment, right? Well, I don't, again, I'm not entirely sure. Because how much material do they actually need? Uh-huh. Why why do they need to keep doing this again and again and again repeatedly? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't get that. Mm-hmm. I I mean I hear what you're saying about right. you know how, how they do it clinically, but I, I think even then, you know, they're getting off on it. Well, and you have a good point in that. You know, how much would they need? Why would they keep needing to do this unless? I mean, what are your ideas about the hybridization as to why that would be happening? Okay, yeah, I, this, this is another area where I differ from a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that it's entirely possible. I mean, if the grays are out there, it, it, it seems to me that it's entirely possible that there's a larger galactic ecology that we're not even aware of and that the greys are just one of that ecology's predators, and that they probably are at competition with other species. Um, Butch Witkowski made made some calculations on you know just how many people have been abducted, and furthermore, how many people have been abducted and never returned. And I mean, it was in the, the hundreds of thousands um, since, let's, let's just say, 1961, um, when 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 Bonnie and Betty Hill abduction occurred. Uh, actually, that was 1951, wasn't it? Um, let me check. <laughs> Thanks. I'm terrible with numbers. I am too. Okay, 61. I was right. Okay, so anyway, it it turns out that there have been just like hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of abductions, and some people have never been returned. This sounds more like a conscription program to me. So I'm I'm guessing that they're they're taking a lot of people and conscripting them into some kind of army in which they're, they're perhaps hybridizing folks, or uh, you know, giving them some abilities that the Greys have, uh, kind of like a, a, a weapons upgrade. I think one of the things that we have that they don't that could very well be useful in a war is that we are very emotional. We have strong, savage passions. Um, we can murder. Um, they. The greys, the greys might be psychotic, but they're not as emotional about it. Mm-hmm. And and we are, and we're, we're, I, th- I think we're better at, at 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 war than they are. 
So, and I guess one, when you say psychotic, that kind of uh, also kind of elicits kind of a, an irrationality yes. um, to what's going on. Yeah, I in uh, Ivan T. Sanderson's book, Invisible Residence, he, he thought that the aliens were, and these are his words, stupid and insane. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've, I've kind of gone with that. It, it once again has the ring of truth to me, and so I've kind of followed with that. And it is impo- it is actually possible to be stupid and insane and still technologically superior. Mm-hmm. And look at us with our nuclear weapons and so forth. That's stupid and insane, but it's very technological. Have there been examples in evolution of uh, kind of a of what you're describing. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you mean of a, a species being stupid and <laughs> yeah, and 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 also having technology, or not maybe the technology part, but maybe thriving, um, even though they're t- stupid and insane. <laughs> um, well, I, I I think definitely with the stupid part. You could you could talk about, um, for example, the hymenopterans like uh, termites, uh, wasps, and so forth. Those that form um, extremely eusocial and uh, cooperative societies. Yet each member is is just basically a robot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's entirely possible that the greys do have some form of hive hierarchy similar to that. And that that would definitely explain their kind of stupid their stupidness. Mm-hmm. But uh oh gosh, no species on earth that's both stupid and insane. Um I don't know, maybe maybe uh the chimpanzees uh they they also have known been known to go to war and be quite uh, violent, um, killing their their fellow uh, species that were just you know an, an outsider group. Mm-hmm. So I you know maybe may, maybe the the chimpanzees have, uh, cer- certainly they've gone insane in uh, captivity. But uh, no, I, that's a really good question. I can't think of a of a species that would fit both those criteria except for the human race. Mm-hmm. Well, and then on the second part of the question, you still believe though that sort of uh, they could still develop technology. Yeah, I do. I do because because uh, we do have a, a great example in us. And just humans themselves. Yeah, the human race uh, at large as as being stupid and insane. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe that's the nature of intelligence? It could be, at least to a certain level of development. And then if you can make it past that level of development, well, then then you're a lucky species. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting because that then... um is certainly a different theory, uh, and it's interesting that it stems back from Ivan T. Sanderson, but then it differs from, for example, David Jacobs in that there is no kind of uh, higher plan, like a grand plan um, here. It's more kind of maliciousness for maliciousness' sake. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Uh, aside from possibly taking, you know, a few hundred thousand of us and, and, and turning us into some kind of weapon that they could use for a a, a war in the larger galactic ecology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that larger galactic ecology then and, and could be similar to um, the animal kingdom we have here where you have your predators and you have um, just these, these battles and people fighting for survival. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's 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 uh, Darwinism writ really large. 
like on the galactic level mm-hmm. or, or or even higher. Yeah, I, I mean Darwinism is natural selection is natural law, and therefore, just like gravity, we would expect it to to work the same everywhere in the universe. So then, do you not see humans as being able to overcome um, these natural laws or this Darwinistic um, idea? So, for instance, um, if we look at the United States, um, you know, it's moved from this empirical type of, and maybe this is something you don't think is true, where, you know, we're not going around conquering countries anymore. Um, instead, we're we're helping countries, um, which is kind of a shift from the last, even in the last few decades, maybe. Because um, uh, the Cold War, you know, to, was kind of a similar thing where there there were countries kind of being influenced. Do you feel that perhaps we're not moving away from that? I think people would feel that uh, humanity is moving away from it, but do you feel that not to be the case? Um, actually, I'm quite optimistic uh-huh. about that. Uh, there are more organizations now than have ever existed in the history of the human species set up to help other people uh-huh. everywhere in the everywhere in the world. And it seems that that's the way we're headed. Uh, we may need to get knocked on our butts by uh, either something horrible like a limited nuclear war or by global climate change and the acidification of the oceans and pollution and on and on and on to really give us a lesson of, hey, that's enough. We need to put that behind us and move on to the next step, which, which I think would be something analogous to, like, the Federation in Star Trek, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, something that would be more than just cooperation. It would it would actually be uh, a species-wide ethos that would, that would uh, move us away from kind of what you were talking about, the, the, the nation conquering, and move us more towards... Um, the fulfillment of dreams. It sounds like you would feel then that we are closer to that ideal than the grace. Yeah, I, I, yes, I, I would actually, I would, I would definitely say that. I, mm-hmm. um, I, I guess that I'm, uh, I guess, I guess that I'm racist towards the grace. <laughs> <laughs> I, if, if someone asked me, are we better than they are, I, I would answer yes. We're not only different, we are better than they are. Mm-hmm. In everything that is important to us as human beings, we are better than the greys. But the one-up they have is technology. Yeah, exactly. They've, they've, they've got us with that. Could that be because they're older? Yeah, I think, I, I, I think probably so. They've, they've probably got quite a bit of time uh, in which they've been working on their technology. There's probably quite a bit of a spread between them and us. Mm-hmm. So, and we'll get back to your nonfiction in a second, because I think we've probably covered uh, kind of a lot, which I think is really interesting around your evolutionary ufology. Um, but when it comes to Little Gray Bastard, is that going to be a, a fiction or is that a nonfiction? It, it's going to be a nonfiction, but it's going to be uh, much more fanciful than evolutionary ufology. Mm-hmm. Uh, my editor and I kind of wanted to make it almost like, almost like a textbook. Not, not really, because you know it's even though it's nonfiction, you know it's got to be fun. Mm-hmm. You know, no, nobody wants to pick up a book on really anything and have it not be fun in some way. Um, but, but yeah, Little Gray Bastards, if it gets green-lighted, will be, it's going to take some other speculations that are that are much more out there 
that, that I wanted to investigate and that my, my co-author, David Barker, wants to investigate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Well, you know, there are a lot of people, too, who just, um, in this field, a lot of the very serious researchers who just can't get past that what they do is not socially acceptable to our standards um, and that it, it and thus it's wrong. And I got to think even, you know, I, I think maybe a little more positively about what might be happening. It's a good point that, you know, if you're going to ingratiate yourself, if this is happening, if you're going to ingratiate yourself to another culture, you don't do it by you know, instead of shaking their hand, bending them over and, and probing them, uh, they're not going to appreciate that. You're not going to get very far diplomatically by doing that. So, yeah, it's it, it's interesting. So getting back to your book then, um, it sounds like it might be kind of fun. I mean, Saucerville, the, the fiction book that has just come out, um, is that what Elliot, uh, the main character, begins to find is that uh, um, they're not only not nice, they're kind of random in, in their actions? Yeah, he's not so interested in that. It's a, another character, a supporting character, his friend Stella. Mm-hmm. Who is a, she's a, a, a genius, genius level at 13, and she kind of has this hope that the aliens are going to save us from ourselves. And when she's abducted and these horrible things are done to her, uh, that beautiful dream gets kind of torn apart. And so you get to kind of feel along with her this disappointment that, oh, gosh, they really are not here to help. They just, they're just here to hurt. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of this guy. And this is a trilogy Yes. Yeah. Saucerville's the first book. The second book is called Conifer, and I'm working on that right now. I'm about 50% done. Mm-hmm. So it sounds kind of interesting. How has the reception of the book gone? Um, from everyone who that I've heard from, everyone I've heard from has, has, has said that it's really great. They couldn't put it down. It kept them up till 3 in the morning. Uh-huh. And those are great things to hear. Uh, I, I I haven't heard much from a larger audience yet. Um, I, ha- I have a part-time job working as a uh, tutor at a middle school here in town, and uh, the kids there they're they're really excited about this book, and the, one of the teachers is going to adopt it for use at school. Oh, really? And, Great. Yeah. So I mean, they're that's going to be a perfect test audience to see just how much they like it. Mm-hmm. And when when I was still writing it before it was published, they asked me, okay, well, does it have a love interest in it? Does it have this? Does it have that? You know, all the things that they wanted. And so I was able to actually talk with my test audience and make sure that my book had what they wanted in it. Oh, interesting. And what made you want to focus it at young adults? Well, that, that was the brilliance of my friend Jennifer Madeline, who was a middle school teacher at the time, mm-hmm. and she had been studying juvenile literature and realized that in that market, there were no books about UFOs. None. Not mm-hmm. one. And... That, that this was a niche that could be filled. She came up with the original idea. She said, you should write it. And both she and her husband helped me flesh it out and make it work. And with, without them, it wouldn't exist. Gotcha. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't even have thought to have written it. Wow, cool. And then what are some of the cases that are um, that you cover, touch upon in the book, and, and how does the book go about doing that yeah it's uh let's see i mean i know i know i mentioned barney and betty hill i mentioned uh the zimbabwe school children case um i mentioned carla turner you know uh, basically i have characters who 
know a lot about ufology. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 they they'll make comments at certain moments about you know oh this reminds me of this case or whatever. And I I know it sounds cumbersome explaining it this way, but it, it actually works pretty well in the book. So I guess when it comes to, because it sounds like a good way for someone um, thinking of, of the audience, the listeners who is into this topic, to kind of introduce it to their young adult children. Um, and however, some of them who are, and it, maybe it's like a 50-50 split would be my guess on those who think the greys are bad or that they're good or out there who believe in the greys at all. Um, the ones, though, that have more of a positive outlook, do you think this is still a good book that they should, because uh, I could see them saying, well, I don't want to give my kid a book that says, you know, the aliens are bad. What would you be your argument for, hey, you should still have them take a look? Um, well, you yeah, know, that's, that's a great question. I, I don't know that I would argue to them. <laughs> You'd say, okay, this is the book for you then. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I actually might. Because, uh-huh. because a parent like that obviously wants to instill a certain worldview. Mm-hmm. And these the worldview in these books is not entirely sparkling. It's it's kind of dirty, it's kind of uh uh dangerous, it's edgy. Um and if that's not the kind of thing that a parent wants their child to read, then well, I fully support and understand that. Mm-hmm. I I myself like to look at you know, all different sorts of ways of, of thinking about ufology, you know, whether it's uh um someone who you know doesn't even believe it or if it's perhaps from a, a, a Christian perspective or a, you know where they think that they're actually demons and so forth I, I find all of that interesting frankly mm-hmm. but but at the same time I realize that most people you know don't really have that much of a pluralist attitude about it that, that they are probably one way or another yeah. Right, right. And so, um finally I guess when it comes to uh well, a couple of questions. One, what would be then your strongest argument if you were to say, you know, you had a moment to say, Well, here's why I think um uh here's why I question their motives. What would be what would you tell people? Oh, oh, well certainly the uh, a simple cost benefit analysis um, what what bad things have they done to us well um they've raped us they've <laughs> they've scared the heck out of us they've 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 probably killed and mutilated some of us um and they haven't really given us anything in return. What what's one thing they've given us in in return? Have they cured one disease? Uh like I said earlier, have they helped with the environment even one bit? You know, mm-hmm. recycled one tin can? Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I don't think they have. That that's that's my argument. I at the same time I want to make it very clear that I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I'm merely giving one more voice and putting more ideas out there. And I think that the, 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 the more different ideas that we have working in ufology, the, the better chance we will all have at starting to figure out or learning how to figure out some of these phenomena. Mm-hmm. And then I, would these be good books for adults too? Uh, some adults have read them mm-hmm. and have really enjoyed them. So uh, yeah, I mean, if 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 you like a good ufology romp, if you like, for example, J.J. Abrams' Super Eight, you know, was kind of that. I loved Super Eight. I I did too. I mean, it just it had that 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 feeling of being a kid again, mm-hmm. and uh, 
you know, the possibilities on a summer night. And if 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 you've got any kind of nostalgia like that, I think you'd enjoy the book. Mm-hmm. And then finally, being someone who's come from academia and seeing the problems, uh, like you said, the career-killing problems of, of being into some fringe topics, how do you feel we can get past that? Do you think we will get past that, or is it is it kind of too hard of a thing to tackle anytime soon? That's 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 an excellent question. I I don't think that academia is going to bend anytime soon at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, the folks that I've known are about career planning. They're about uh, uh, they're about writing and publishing articles, and uh, that's it. And anything else they see as a threat and a waste of time. And I don't, I don't think that academia is going to change anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, da- uh, David Halpern, who wrote the novel Journal of the UFO Investigator, um, he, he was he was in academia too for many years. And uh, for a while, he was able to get away with uh, his his kind of side project of studying ufology. But he said it did catch up with him at the end, and luckily he was at the point where he was ready to retire, so he didn't care. <laughs> mm-hmm. Great. Interesting. Well, people can go to Amazon to get to your book, Saucerville, um, and then uh, is that the best place to go? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, so is there – do you – have another website? Yes, I do. It's it's for the Saucerville trilogy, and it's the website is just called uh, saucervilletrilogy.com. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Great. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, it's a really interesting and different perspective, uh, which always is, is a lot of fun to. Uh, hear something I haven't heard before so and I think a lot of people will because it's been a long time since I've talked with someone who uh, kind of had a different point of view so uh, I'm sure there'll be some people that always are come out of the work work and say hey that guy makes some some sense to me so uh, but either way it sounds like a fun book well thank you very much and thank you for having me it's been a pleasure Thank you so much to Jordan for joining us on the show. So some pretty interesting ideas. I think that uh, you would agree, like the little gray bastards type of stuff. Uh, That book's going to be coming out uh, in a little bit. You can read about when that book is coming out actually on his website. He didn't mention this one, jordanhoferufo.wordpress.com. Jordan Hofer, and Hofer is H-O-F-E-R ufo.wordpress.com he mentioned the other site that's saucervilletrilogy.com website where you can read about the Saucerville um, book and then you can go to Amazon and look for Saucerville, Jordan Hofer or Evolutionary UFO or Ufology and you'll find him on Amazon and all of his books there so if you want to look up some more information that is how you find it Thank you once again for joining us for Open Mind UFO Radio. Next week, we're planning to talk about uh, UFO in the Bibles from a gentleman who's on Ancient Aliens uh, once in a while. So you'll want to check that out. Uh, Of course, check out the website, openminds.tv. Check out our YouTube channel where we've always got cool new stuff going up there, including Spacing Out. There'll be a new one this week. And then I want to, as usual, thank the people who made our music because I'm so appreciative of them offering their music for us. And I think they're very talented and it's great music. Caleb Hanks for doing the opening music and then two Earth Minutes for the close, which you will hear momentarily. Thank you all for listening. Adios, muchachos. We'll talk to you next week. 